Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode to The Art of Customer Service. My name is Eric Pfannmaller. I'm your host on this show, a former canoeing world champion, father of three, and founder of Solvemate, a leading platform for customer service automation, now part of Dixa. Our automation platform, powered by smart conversational AI, allows companies to deliver quality customer service faster. As you know, on The Art of Customer Service, I talk to experts about what makes good customer service, which tools and practices are relevant in the industry today, which new technologies are available in the customer service area, and many other exciting topics around a great service experience. Before we get to it, if you like this show, I would be really happy if you could give us a five-star rating on the streaming service of your choice. Today's episode is about service design. Service what? Service design. You've heard correctly. What is service design? What does service and design have in common? Why is this important? How can I design my customer service? For that topic, I have with me today Stefan Moritz. He's an associate partner at McKinsey Design, and prior to that, he worked nearly a decade in a design agency. So he's a true expert in that topic. I'm glad to have you here, Stefan. Welcome. Thank you. Who are you and how did you get into customer service and especially customer service design? I'm Stefan. I live in Sweden right now. I escaped Germany a long time ago and I was actually born into customer service. My dad worked in several car dealerships. He was responsible for all the cars that were not the two cars that existed in East Germany. So as a small boy, I went to all these dealers and he sort of showed me how to walk in the customer's shoes and so I slid in with that. My mom was into digital and when I was little, she was programming with hole punch cards. Then I sort of brought this together as, as life is, is meant to But I stumbled into service design very much in the same way that you just described it. I was interested in design intuitively, but I wasn't the artist kind of designer. I didn't have a portfolio. But in Cologne, there was a design school that tried to challenge a little bit how design education was done. They only took people in that had already practical experience and they debunked these sort of lines of graphic design, industrial design. And so they had 13 hubs that you could sort of tap into with your different projects. A project would have a home, but you wouldn't be stuck in graphic design. And to spice it up, they invented three new areas of design. Gender design, design and ecology, and service design, which nobody knew what it was. So gender design at that time was very explorative to understand what we would call inclusive design now, but very much from a, when you design a product, do you design it specifically for men or specifically for women? Can you challenge the boundaries? I mean, some very abstract philosophical projects have happened in that area, but I just put the spotlight a little bit with a twist on people are different. Let's be mindful of that. Ecological design at that time, and this is like before the millennium, basically, 98, 99, was a lot about learning from nature, sustainability, how do you design for people and planet, very sort of hybrid. Also super interesting things, like can you have materials that clean themselves and, and so on. And service design was exactly like you said, can you design services? And initially, we basically took this very much like the philosophy of making things useful and usable, you know, but also efficient and effective, just like you would think about a product to be improved, you could also improve a service. And as we then sort of went into it, you realize a service happens over time. So you need to kind of find a way to apply that design philosophy in key moments. So that's where the customer journey came from. A lot of work happened in digital design, interface design, which was another hub, very interesting uh, professor that, that was teaching that. So it was all kind of culminating together. But I just love the idea that you could be agnostic in your thinking. So when Siemens came and said, we want the fridge of the future, you could say, maybe that's a future food delivery service concept. That really intrigued me that you were more focused on the, on the need, on the potential need, 
because maybe the need will evolve, but that you had a broader viewpoint and that digital UX doesn't stop at the edges of the screen, but you sort of think about what happens before and you think about what happens after. That's a very interesting concept. Let me rephrase that for the people that are hearing us and didn't see your gestures. So if I think of software, for me, this is like what I do on a screen. But when you say about service, we of course do not only mean the service like of the product itself, but also like pre-purchase, what I do in the physical world, how I might interact with, let's say, service agents or the company, like a part of the service experience of the whole product, even if it's a virtual product or if it's a physical product. Am I, am I getting that right? Exactly. The next aspect in that experience that is very personal is very local. So you cannot export service if you think about it. It is always where the customer is. A lot of companies realize that when they outsource their call centers to India and struggled with you know people <laughs> relating to the challenges that people actually had in the beginning. Yeah, service is something else than just doing something. I've heard a lot of stories about outsourcing and probably we should make another episode on outsourcing because like there's always new nuances to that. And But very often you can't outsource a service, at least as my personal opinion, you can outsource a task. Really outsourcing the great service, you need to have the same mentality as the company you're working for. So outsourcing to India to save costs will create a different experience than if you have someone who's really part of living and breathing the values of that company. Exactly. And that's why I'm also interested, you know, when you call your show the art of customer service, there's something human and creative in that. And I believe even though the delivery of a service could be fully automated and fully digital, right? The experience of the service is always going to be human and individual. Bill Mogridge once said, you can only experience an experience when you experience it. That makes it very interesting from a design perspective, because you need to really put yourself into the perspective. I mean, a lot of people said, you know, it's a customer service is about walking in the customer's shoes. Sometimes it's not about walking. Sometimes it's just feeling your way into the context that they have. One way to explain that is if you travel, maybe we're not traveling so much anymore, but when we used to travel... When you travel through Heathrow with your family, it would be a very different set of context needs, desires than when you were on a business trip. So even the same individual could have a very different experience depending on where they're coming from, where they're going and who they are in that mindset. Also, every single day it could be different because once there could be a queue and the other time nobody could be at the airport or it could be like a very different experience. I'm just thinking of driving from, from A to B in a car and one day it could be super annoying if it's rush hour and one day if it's 3 a.m. at night, I'm so happy because like on the same product, which is the same coming from A to B in the same car, if I'm driving alone at a different time or with different people, it is a complete different experience. In a way, that makes it very difficult to design for, right? Because then it's like, okay, do I need to deliver something different for everybody? How the hell is that possible? So I think that's one of the interesting challenges, how you navigate the prioritization of who are the people I'm designing for and also what is the trade-off? This is also adding complexity level. Everyone probably of this podcast knows what customer personas are. So you try to build a vivid picture of who is the person type, like the archetype, the stereotype of persons you are selling a software to. But if I think on a metrics, which is like the people and the circumstances they are in, that could even become a cube when I say like the car, it's who am I? When am I driving? Which car am I driving? Which is kind of, you know, creating like a lot of magnitude of more complexity. 
The other thing is that the service happens over time. So if you're a brand, the only people that ever have a clue what you deliver is the customer. There's no CMO, there's no CEO, there's nobody that actually sees end to end outside in what you deliver. In a way, the customer is the glue that can help you bring it all together in, in terms of cross-functional value creation. The thing that fascinates me, if you paint that picture, it's not about incrementally slightly improving some pain points. A lot of organizations, when they think about service, they try to look at what are the pain points and can we fix them? Less pain is always wonderful, but what I'm very interested in is what are the win-win shared value creation opportunities where you can say, by making this better for the customer, we're actually saving time. Or by doing this more efficiently, we're creating a better experience. And that sounds a little bit too good to be true, right? I'll give you one very nice example. There is an American insurance that's called Progressive. They had a service where basically when you have an accident, a car that looks very cool, white SUV that has Progressive written on the side would show up, usually before the police. So very fast, with a very nice person coming out. And if you imagine you just crashed into something, usually you stand there, you're shaking, you feel bad, you know, all of, of these course. things. Probably you're late to something. So there's a nice person coming up to you and says, you know, Eric, are you okay? Like connecting with you as a person looking after you. You know what? I'm going to give you a taxi and we're going to sort this out. When you think about it, the dream experience that you would wish would exist. The interesting story behind it is this is a service that is profitable. The reason why is that in the US, the number was cost driver for insurances is fraud. So how do you deal with fraud? You go and have a look. So by going there and being first on the scene, you can check what happened. You eliminate fraud. Second biggest cost driver is you get sued because people are pissed off. They don't want to spend money, whatever. If some nice person in a nice car came and said, Eric, are you okay? You're not going to sue them. Maybe less likely. Interestingly, as the story goes, this project secretly started as Project Fraud Squad, but was very beautifully designed and repackaged to feel like a fantastic experience to the customer. And I'm just using it to make the point that this is not only about making things a little bit nicer and it costs a lot of money. It is about win-win and finding smart new design solutions that really address the experience, create more value for the customer and in a way that doesn't have to always be profitable in its own right. In that case, it was, but it can reduce cost to serve. It can open up new sales opportunities because you build a better relationship or you get to know their needs better and so forth. Very interestingly, if you get it right, it almost always also creates a better employee experience. And that's something that I got very interested in a couple of years ago. And very day, the company that I joined to build up the service design capability there maybe 11 years ago, very day. They had started in the late 60s as a hippie collective, very focused on ergonomics and physical improvement of hazards in the workplace. They did a lot of products for people with disability. And what really fascinated me when we did service design change programs, that the moment where the magic happens is when the employees understand how they are part of creating value for the customer. It is not always trivial if you're in a bank, you work in one department and you never meet the customer. Seeing the customer journey, getting the insights and the stories helps you relate to how actually as a team play, you're part of something bigger. I just realized as we are living in a digital world and there is like a lot of software that I'm using on my phone, on my PC. And let's talk about a bank. Like a bank for me is not a bank anymore. It's like a software for me that does something with money. I'm striving for digital experiences to not talk to anyone because it's just so efficient on buying software, doing things, even booking hotels. I'm doing online and then I'm looking forward to the travel. But if I get any question before the travel or before the physical interaction, that is where I contact the company for the first time. Typically customer service. But 
this is kind of where service design comes in because thinking about booking booking a travel, I'm going online, I'm booking on a platform, I have a question. Then I'm kind of using the service in the non-digital way because I'm reaching out. Could be in a digital way, but of course, could also be that I'm calling. If we think in service design, it's more than like how to render the whole service, including the journey of contacting the company in a physical world, even though the product is digital. I'm an advocate of thinking customer service as a key differentiator and making every customer interaction count and unique and taking time to deal with clients if they want to and just resolving very fast and very efficient if they don't want to. I think you're touching on something very interesting. And if we stay with banks, many banks have started to look at their branch network from the wrong perspective. They basically mm -hmm. said, oh, people are becoming more digital. We can reduce cost without really understanding the implication of relationship building. For example, the aging population. I'm the first person to say just because you're old doesn't mean you're not digital. I know a lot of very digital old people. Just to understand, there are people that prefer to come to a physical place. Obviously, Corona was also very interesting in that mix of things because it forced people to change their behavior and some have bounced back and some have found new ways of behaving. But the interesting thing is to really understand the value created today and the value created tomorrow. What you could say in this dynamic of digital physical automating self-service is that you're not competing anymore with another company of your kind. So a bank is no longer competing with a bank, but you compete with every single best experience that your customers have in that moment. So when you talk about transparency, you're competing maybe with Amex. If you're competing about seamless checkout, you're competing with Uber. So you come to the hotel walking out of your Uber where you didn't have to pay and you need to queue up for a check-in. What? There are all these interesting clashes happening. But when companies sort of throw big words around, we need to make the experience seamless. I also believe there is a point in not making everything seamless and designing your way out of people's lives. You want to be thoughtful in what are our magic moments that we want to own, where we want to earn the relationship. Because these days, the relationship is probably more valuable than money. People are selling data of people for real. So we've gone kind of from a share of wallet to a share of time, because time is super valuable. I'm always saying time is the new gold these days. We are using in, in such a fragmented world. I'm interacting with hundreds of brands every month, and I'm having a very limited attention span to every single brand itself. And if things don't work, I sometimes call it a Netflix effect. If Netflix doesn't stream for 10 seconds, I am and my wife, we are feeling, what, what happens here? And that's Netflix's fault. Although it's only 10 seconds and we don't remember that 10, 20 years ago, we watched advertisements for hours and minutes. So 10 seconds would be ridiculous. Time is super important. And I would take that even one step further and say there is something which you could call share of care, where every day there's only so much time you have to really engage with something. But people do, right? I mean, there are certain brands, certain services that you actually want to spend time with and you enjoy it because they find a balance between empowering you to do things on your terms, but also a little bit taking it further, a little bit inspiring you, a little bit being there for you. Seeing service not as a cost, but as an opportunity to engage, as an opportunity to learn. Because in reality, as a company, what is more important than ever is that you tune into your customers to figure out what's next. And you partner with them almost to co-create the future together. And that can be in form of looking at the data that is being generated of what people actually do. That is so much more valuable than surveys. If you look at the survey, you can see what people said they might do. When you look at data, you see what they do that they do. What we spend a lot of time with either way is to understand why. 
Because I think that's the sort of golden key to really figure things out. And there are many clients that say, we know our customers, we meet them all the time. But when you look at how much understanding they have of what drives people and what are the underlying motivations, there isn't that much there or it isn't very well documented. Sometimes it exists in the heads of people in the world somewhere, but bringing that out and really cultivating an understanding of why that allows you to think ahead and think bigger and give people the things that they need, even though they haven't realized it yet or they can't express it verbally. I want to quickly touch upon a different topic that in our pre-chat, you said something like startups are too product focused and not service focused. Everyone in the startup industry or in any company say, we need to build the best product and the best product sells itself. And we only talk about product. What did you mean by the sentence? Startups are too product focused and not service focused. When we were trying to battle out, you know, what is service design, we were trying to shape that domain and then design thinking came along as a sort of description of pretty much the same thing, but out of a necessity to still work with products and also with services. And in Silicon Valley, people that did service design actually talked about products because they were shipping things that were very tangible. And it, it became somehow a semantic to say we are creating digital products. And in a way, it's the same train of thought, just from a different perspective that they were saying, you know, we can design physical products, we can design digital products, where we were coming more from the perspective of a service is different and the product is part of a service system. And maybe you can have a product as a service and some of that is digital. We were trying to make it more holistic. But it also was more, more fluffy. So there was a certain point where when you come from a product logic, you're missing out compared to a service logic just in principle, because you're not really thinking about the organizational capability to evolve that and the full value creation ecosystem around it. That's obviously being very semantic. There are plenty of startups that are super smart that are thinking in ecosystems and they just call it product. That, that, that's totally okay, right? So I would differentiate a little bit between what they do versus what they say. There is something very interesting in looking at ecosystems and looking at the capability to deliver a service versus shipping a product. And the big difference between a product and the service in my mind is a product you can store and wait for somebody to come along and then you give it to them, which with some digital product is the case, right? They, they sit there until somebody buys them. A service, you need to take part as a customer in the value creation, which also means as a service provider, you need to be there to deliver the service. It's always interactive, always personal. So there are a few qualities that the service needs to have to be really a service. It's a very big abstraction needed from like a product Let's say I'm going to the, a department store and I'm buying a vacuum cleaner. The experience starts in the department store. I just get it. And it's about how do I buy this? And then I take it home and then I use the product. But let's say the same department store sells it online. Kind of my service experience starts when I'm going online and it ends when being delivered a great package. So when I'm getting delivered a new Lenovo PC, there is like this cool unboxing moment, which is part of the service, which is easy to understand in physical world. But in a digital world, let's say there's a software product which needs some human interaction like customer service software you kind of engage with a salesperson sign a contract you hand over you maybe got a kickoff workshop where you meet people on zoom or in person and then there's a relationship building up the whole thing is kind of the customer journey or the service and then it gets even harder to understand for me at least if there's a product where i'm typically never interacting with a company like i'm only interacting digitally i'm effectively only having a customer service request once i really have that request but the service is bigger than the customer service request 
request. The service is, how do I ride with friends digitally? So I think there's one dimension is the service reactive versus proactive. What I'm interested in is the value creation, essentially. And there is this concept of customer success that many software companies have introduced to get out of their yes. product box that I think is fantastic because ultimately you're engaging with the value you're providing for the customer. And that's where a lot of physical product companies have also gotten stuck that they thought, you know, when I deliver you the washing machine, my job is done. I've given you the cool thing. It's going to last a few years. Goodbye. Nobody cares if I'm cleaning it the right way, if I'm using it the right way, if I get... Think about it breaks down and you could call someone with a video call with your phone saying, it just broke down. Can you help me? I mean, who wants to repair a washing machine? I mean, nobody wants to. Maybe you don't even want to own the washing machine. Maybe you want it automatically to be replaced every few years so you never have the hassle. For example, in heavy vehicles, we've done a lot of work on predictive maintenance where it's much smarter for everybody involved that certain parts get changed proactively because you have algorithms, you have data, you can know that, okay, this vehicle is coming in once in a while. It's probably better we change this so they don't have downtime because that costs them a fortune and it's a bad experience. That also needs a new way of delivering that service and it's a new pricing model and as businesses mature that they're also willing to pay more for outcomes so you know pay for the transportation pay for the clean laundry that change has happened a lot slower than i would have thought there was a book already when when i was in cologne by michael erloff that was called using instead of owning and i just thought that's great like you know who wants to own a lot of stuff but the cultural code of owning and, and showing what you own and being defined but you own you don't shake that off yeah, yeah, still washing machines are owned and not leased. I think with cars, I never bought a car. I'm just leasing cars since more than a decade because I feel like I don't want to have the hassle. Like for me, this is about paying a bit more, driving a car for three to five years, giving it back, getting a new one, don't need to take care of everything. The sharing economy, so to say, it is taking off, but I see. It is taking off. And I think that the impact on behavior from the pandemic that people have literally seen and felt it can be very different for the next few years will be huge. And what fascinates me is we've been kind of forced to make those changes. I mean, nobody wanted to be locked in at home and order things online. But if you think about that, we could make a change in that magnitude in terms of how decisions were made, how we collaborated, how we do research remotely, how we do creative innovation remotely. We've learned so much. Could it be possible that we do this proactively create the future that we want in different domains think about service that we want to have and one interesting data point for me if we go back to employee experience a couple of years ago when i looked into it there was almost 67 percent of people that weren't fully engaged at work quite a lot of people that are not fully there 50 percent of all the tasks that we do can be automated we're wasting a lot of human time on crap. We don't need to do it. People are not engaged. So what would it look like if we could actually do the things that give us energy, that we really strive with and imagine a sort of new human value creation where if you just take the 50%, what do we do with the other 50%? Can we spread it evenly, first of all? Or is it some people work quite a lot and some people have nothing to do? And if you think back to East Germany, we know that planning that over five years is not a good idea. So this is something that needs to be organic. It needs to be facilitated. And we need to create a society where people are empowered to take ownership of that, but also get inspired because not everybody has the time or the foresight or the creativity to imagine that things could be different. So I think that's super exciting to sort of just improve how we serve everybody and how we service each other together. So I think that's that's an interesting thing for the next few years. I just learned something about service design. And when I think about being in an employment relationship, 
and working for someone, not for working for money, but kind of how can I be happy in that whole thing. COVID made a lot of more freedom to everyone to live where they want. And I'm telling people, you don't need to be in the Berlin office if you want to work for or with SolveMate. You can be wherever you want. And that creates a new experience, like externally induced, a new experience that some of my colleagues, including me, really enjoy, like having the flexibility. I have a colleague and she was traveling. She was six weeks in Greece and then she was six weeks in Macedonia and then she was somewhere else. But in in fact, she got another external screen. She like rented an Airbnb for every six weeks uh, with her partner. And that is a new experience type of work because as a knowledge worker, fast internet, second screen, APC, that's what you need for work. And it's not for everyone, but for some people, this is radically new thinking. I mean, it enables new lifestyles, but it also challenges organizations fundamentally. And it's been interesting to see how different companies have reacted. So there is a wide spectrum from the CEO that said, if you want to work from home, take vacation, or, you know, you have to come back to the office versus the ones that were on the other extreme to said, you know, whatever, if you take vacation, that's on you. As long as you do your job, you can take vacation whenever. You can choose your benefits as you want from a menu and everything in between. And I think leadership has been challenged on a couple of important dimensions, one of which is inclusivity, to understand that just because I have a family and my kids are in a school, I don't want to live six weeks everywhere else. That doesn't apply to all my employees. And for me, that was a little bit shocking in some situations how little knowledge the leadership team had into what really matters to the population in their organization and the differences and what matters to people. The other thing is your point on just imagining what could be possible. Like just from a productivity standpoint, asynchronous working where, you know, you could have a global team working on things and you don't have to be in a meeting to do work. Wow, imagine that. And, and I think we've just scratched the surface on some of these things. I just wanted to say this is a topic on its own. And we're just starting to write really like asynchronous guidelines. I think we are working a lot of asynchronous with like messaging and apps like Slack or Microsoft Teams, which effectively is asynchronous work, which we already had before with emails, which was also asynchronous in a certain way. But things are rapidly improving because now you can just send video messages to colleagues while screen sharing and ask them for their feedback whenever they have time to and you just wait one day you don't need to have a meeting for that if you ask for brainstorming input but before we get into service design for employee experience i just realized the time flies by here we today talked about service design with stefan moritz from mckinsey design thank you for being on the show today thank you for a great conversation Danke fürs Zuhören beim Digital Kompakt Podcast. Du merkst, hier ziehst du massig Wissen für dich und dein Unternehmen heraus. Wenn du mit uns noch erfolgreicher werden möchtest, abonniere uns auf den gängigen Podcast-Plattformen. Und hey, je größer wir werden, desto mehr Menschen können wir helfen. Also erzähl doch auch deinen Kolleginnen und Kollegen von uns. Bis zum nächsten Mal.